0: care for all Rose bros can suck my balls fuck your reply guys please don't fuck your reply guys just listen to reply guys hello and welcome back to reply guys
1: the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us
0: i am kate willett
1: and i'm julia clare
0: Julia, how are you doing with this uh, terrible news? And, you know, by that, of course, I mean the impending vibe shift. The vibe shift?
1: I personally have made it a policy to never have a vibe. Uh, (laughs) I am, um, and if I do, it's got to be bad vibes only. Um, So I'm okay. I'm just, I'm more upset about um, what I'm seeing on the on the runways right now, to be totally honest, uh, it's giving uh, Bush invades Iraq realness, It's like straight up mi- early 2000s, mini skirts and bucket hats. Oh my God. Um, and I think that that's a danger to society. <laughs> that outfit is a weapon of mass destruction i know um, it's the only weapon of mass destruction is this that ensemble you have there yeah there was this and piece. low-rise in, jeans are you kidding me no
0: there was this piece in the cut that i was referencing where uh yes yeah, they they wrote about like they, they interviewed this consultant's guy who was like a cultural consultant and it's uh, you know, people who are freaking out. The people in their mid thirties who are freaking out that you know we're, we're entering a uh, a vibe shift <laughs> again. You know, like the you know like the, there was a hipster era yeah. and then there was a protest not brunch era and we're now entering a new era with new trends and you know the uh, the, the people who have been. Trendy influencers, you know, finger on the pulse, will they be able to keep up? And it's just kind of funny because it's like, to me, this com- this whole conversation feels like amazingly irrelevant because like you were saying, I've never been cool. You know, it's yeah. like, a although 2020- I mean,
1: although we are the the tastemakers you and I personally so you know this this will this might affect us because will we still be able to hold on to our vice grip on the culture yeah I I mean there was
0: I definitely have felt I guess in maybe in the past you know kind of since things have kind of opened back up here in New York a little bit like I've definitely felt like oh like I am older like whatever the kind of like trend is like I don't I don't fully know what's going on but I never really did you know I'm like one of those people that it's like 2020 and I'm like have you guys heard of this band called Boney Bear? you know <laughs> but uh yeah I mean to me it's like there's if, I mean, you know, to kind of relate this to capitalism, it is, I think, a product of our hyper-individualistic capitalist society that there's kind of no sort of pervasive thought to the fact that, like, being a person in your 30s, you know, ideally, certainly necessarily to have a happy life. Like, your focus actually needs to move to something outside of yourself and whether you're cool, you know? And I think that for, yeah, in a lot of previous generations, people kind of have made that shift, um, you know, with like family, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. which, it has its has its own set of problems, right? You know, I mean, I guess, you know, family is this this little unit of consumers. And, and so, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and all that, it's not like people are fully inured to self-absorption by having children.
1: Certainly not. Oh, you know? I love thinking of families as units of consumers. <laughs> it's so bleak, but I guess that is one way to think about it. <laughs> But (laughs) anyways, the patriarch and the matriarch of my unit of consumers are (laughs) a nice older couple from Massachusetts.
0: That's so funny. I yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I wonder how many people are like the type of people that even worry about that stuff. I feel like I don't know anyone like that. I, I just my the people in my life are sort of Uh, were selected in some ways for their
1: uncoolness, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think you can't, you know, trends have always come and gone throughout the history of consumerism, but because, and I hate to be like, it's the phones, but (laughs) because of social media, the lifespan of a trend is so much shorter, um, like, fashion... You know, I don't want to get... Look, I don't want to get on my high horse here. But the fashion industry is one of the largest producers of waste that ends up in landfills. So you don't need to change your clothes. It's like... the All of these weird trends last for, like, three weeks now. So... I don't know. And every time honestly, every I know that it's like trendy, but every time I see Bella Hadid wearing those like teeny tiny little glasses, like sunglasses, I'm just like this is who is this is not for anyone. I don't this is like extremely hot plastic surgery rich lady shit that we don't need to participate in.
0: So first of all, I don't think I could pick Bella Hadid out of a lineup that is the that's the level of trend that I'm at, right? <laughs> like, but speaking of um, rich ladies and plastic surgery, there was also this article that came out this week in like People magazine, I think, uh, about Linda Linda, Linda Evangelista.
1: Evangelista. Yeah, yeah, was obviously
0: you know a, a
1: supermodel.
0: Um, I, if, when did she reach like the height of her supermodeldom? Like the '80s,
1: I remember. Late '80s early yeah. 90s um yeah she was the she was kind of the the group of in the group of supermodels who were like you know she was the one who who coined the phrase or was quoted as saying i don't get out of bed for less than than ten thousand dollars a day uh she, it was like her Cindy crawford christy charlington naomi campbell um and, yeah,, uh, but yeah, they were the, and you know, all of those women are still working. And that's one of the the main points of contention that Linda Evangelista has raised in her um having quote unquote, been deformed by cool sculpting, which is like a type of liposuction. And she's like suing the founder of the suing the company that created this this kind of of liposuction, but yeah, I have to say Naomi Campbell still looks incredible.
0: I yeah, I mean doing. to me, it's like I, I definitely can a hundred percent understand why somebody in Linda Evangelista's position would get plastic surgery. Yeah, like yeah, for, yeah, her, for her sure. entire income depends on looking a certain way, you know. Yeah. But it is—it's kind of like the—it's related to the the vibe shift. Is like you know we live in a we live in a culture that has no idea how to like cope with aging
1: whatsoever yeah. you know um, and also to make such like an individual problem and it like she she talks about it like she's part of a class action lawsuit uh again like of like an someone a company that has been dumping toxic waste in a local community like it's i think that they're i think i don't know people just don't have perspective and that's always been the case with people of like wealth and privilege and fame but i think they receive so much positive feedback all the time the like yes queening of it all that they just think that it's fine and that this problem is as serious as everything else going on in the world
0: so speaking of Wealth, privilege, and fame, you did say you were going to give me the rundown of the Kim and Kanye situation, because I've been seeing this in social media, and my thought on it so far is I really want Kim to date someone who does not have a Cluster B personality disorder. I
1: know. (laughs) That is what we all want for her. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Kim and Kanye obviously split up. And Kanye, uh, Kanye started dating Julia Fox. Kim started dating Pete Davidson. And Kanye has deleted, like, almost every post from his Instagram. He's, like, w- totally wiped his Instagram. And he's just posting, like, these memes and, like, really poorly CGI'd photos um, illustrating his... I think one-sided beef with Pete Davidson and um, he's also posted screenshots from Kim from uh, of him talking to Kim where she's like pleading with him to stop harassing Pete and to stop like inflaming his fans because Pete doesn't have like the level of security that like and by security I mean like a security guards yeah security guards to the degree that Kim does but it's it's kind of kicked off an interesting conversation online because Kim is obviously you know she's so Mm -hmm. (sighs) emblematic of many of our (laughs) society's cultural ills uh of you know of her own making but this this kind of uh, raises a point of like she, ultimately she can experience like intimate partner harassment like anyone else and not everyone, you know, there are so many people who don't have the, most people don't have the resources that she has and couldn't protect themselves from someone. I mean, Kanye has like, you know, is a long history with bipolar disorder and, But many people have pointed out that, like, women with bipolar disorder are not given the kind of grace that he routinely is. And, yeah, he's just kind of making – he's, like, made threats in his songs about Pete Davidson. I don't know. There are so many – there are four children involved. Uh, That's the part of it that's, like, really heartbreaking to me. I don't – like, I mean, obviously, I don't want anyone to be – harmed anywhere um and but I do I I feel for the for the kids for the their children who are ca- kind of ca- caught in the middle of this and yeah I I think it's scary it like it definitely has been you know you and I both know people who have experienced intimate partner violence and I've seen a lot of people tweeting about how this really like sets off alarm bells for them. Um, so yeah, it's just been like a weird thing to see play out publicly, and it's kind of, uh, it's it's unsettling to say the least, and especially that it's kind of coming right now on when this like that documentary about uh, Kanye's early years just came out, and it's like very much. Oh, I didn't see that yeah, it's very much like valorizing him, which like, I love his music. I always will. Um, But I, yeah, it's, it's just a strange confluence of events happening right now. And I think it's, yeah, it's just kind of fucking, I don't know if, yeah, it's, it just brings up a lot of uh, red flags from, that I've, that I've seen expressed by people who are like domestic violence survivor advocates stuff like that. I don't know. It
0: it definitely is it, it definitely does seem scary. It's I was thinking about this a lot and talked about it too in the conversation with our guests this week. Um we in on the one hand are living in a culture that sees trauma And in everything, like Mm -hmm. we were talking about a few weeks ago in the West Helm-Caleb situation, everything is gaslighting. Everything Mm -hmm. is violence. Everything is trauma. Um, And then on the other hand, we also don't take it seriously whatsoever when these things are actually happening, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, we we are, I think, culturally very... um, keen to perceive abuse in situations which are maybe not abusive at all, you know? And also then when abuse is happening, it's pretty shrugged off or people think it's funny, you know? Um, Well, yeah.
1: I mean, the two go hand in hand when you like flood the conversation by calling everything abuse and everything harassment, then when stuff like this does come up, it's like easy to dismiss for, pe- for other people to just be like, Oh, everyone calls everything abuse and harassment now.
0: And I think it's a, you know, it's like a two way relationship. It works in both directions because it's also like, if you're really dismissive of abuse and harassment, there can be, I think, you know, an overcorrection to yeah, a, totally. A, you know, Seeing stuff like a a bunch of flirty texts on a dating app as, you know, love bombing or something like that. And like the impulse, I think, to like popularize knowledge of like what abusive dynamics are, I think is mostly a good one. But yeah. it it also gets, I, I don't know. It's just a really confusing time. Anyway, this, this conversation that I had this week was with Laura Kibnis, who is a professor at Northwestern, and she's written a bunch of books that I really love. Um There was one book uh, for folks who are not feeling those Valentine's vibes. She wrote Against Love, a polemic. It's really more of a book about, it's an argument against uh, domesticity, I think. But she recently wrote a book um, called Love in the Time of Contagion, which is a set of essays about um, intimacy in pandemic times. And I thought it was really, really good. I think she's super sharp. Um, She is somebody that, I, I think is really interesting Because she is like a, You know she's She's very much I think on the side Of like free speech free discourse And also a very committed Feminist which I think is like You know that's <laughs> A lot of the Conversation about free yeah. speech has been Very co-opted by the right You know but I think you know she's somebody that Is Not afraid to Express Heterodox Opinions was actually a few years back. um, She wrote an essay for like a like an industry publication for higher education. I forgot what what it was called, but it was about basically her campus had made a rule um, that professors were not allowed to date students, even students who are not in the class at all like you know just a professor and no student we're not allowed to have any romantic relationships and she mm-hmm. wrote this piece that argued basically like you know actually this is not appropriate for us to be determining like as long as it's they're not in the same class then you know these are two adults we can't mm-hmm. really control that nor should we be controlling it you know it's in, it's we're infantilizing people who are actual grown-ups you know and um she got in really big trouble for writing that piece. She's brought up on a Title IX investigation by her university, like, just for expressing mm. that opinion. And, you know, I think that she has a really interesting perspective and thoughts that, you know, I think, you know... At minimum, I will say, like, it can be people, you know, she says some stuff that I would imagine people will not agree with and other stuff that, you know, people will agree with. But in general, I, you know, I, I do admire her commitment to maintaining her feminist values and also not being afraid to get for lack of a better word, canceled, if that makes sense. You know, she's a really interesting person. And I think listeners will enjoy this interview and maybe even be mad about some parts of it.
1: I can't wait. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. And thanks to everyone who's been subscribing to our Patreon uh, recently. We super appreciate that. It's, you know... Uh, not a lot of money can make a big difference in, um, in like the ways in which we are able to keep producing this show, uh, and, you know, pay our producer and pay ourselves a small, a
0: stipend,
1: a small t- t- a tuppence, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, we just really appreciate it and, um, Again, if you could if you if you're if you're a long-time listener and you've never left us a review on Apple Podcasts, we would super appreciate that. It helps people find the show and helps us keep this train a moving. So, we thank you so much and I can't wait to hear this interview.
0: Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am so excited this week to be joined by an author that I've been a fan of for a really long time. Uh, she's a professor at Northwestern as well. Welcome to the show, Laura Kipnis. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. I am very excited. And, uh, you may hear some background noise, both listeners and Laura, because my cats are, as they say, on one right now. They're a regular feature of the podcast, but they're really, uh, going for it today. <laughs> so, um, You have a new book out, and uh, it's called Love in the Time of Contagion. And, you know, I love this book, but I'll let you
2: tell listeners what it's about. Oh, that's a big assignment. Um, (laughs) Well, I, you know, I'd written this book against love, a polemic. Um, it's now a couple of decades ago. And it was this kind of anti-domestic screed and, you know, a lot of ranting about couple domesticity and um, what people do to each other in couples, namely police each other uh, and surveil each other and uh, make rules for each other. Um, And so then at the beginning of the pandemic during lockdown, um, I had had and have been in this long-term couple, but it's of that living apart together version. And uh, when lockdown started in New York, we ended up uh, sheltering together in a one-bedroom apartment, his, for six months. So that was part of the inception of this. I mean, that, of course, caused me to reflect a lot about the conditions of Coupled domesticity and also what was happening to relationships um during the pandemic. But, you know, so it's a focus on the personal. But I think in all my books, I'm also always interested in stepping back and talking about the political context. And, of course, you know, that was uh, ever present during the pandemic, all of the inequities and the ways that the pandemic put this kind of, you know, microscope on the whole country and the political system and the social and health inequalities. And, you know, so I think it it was a microscope in the larger sense on that social totality, but also in the narrower sense on our own relationships and choices.
0: Yeah, it really it really was this year where, like, you know, I mean, for, for myself, just as an example, like my life had been really, you know, just out and about like performing almost every night, you know, for almost a decade and, you know, to just kind of go fully inside and have my world become two or three people. I mean, I I learned a lot about myself, some good, some bad, you know, really. um, I think that, I think that that hyper focus on how we relate, you know, maybe even in some, uh, bad ways. <laughs> it changed a lot of people in ways that like, I, I don't, it, it's, you, I, I guess people aren't really sort of talking about that. Um, because it's, it's so personal, but I like yeah. that your book
2: really addressed it, you know? Well, the bad ways as, as you call them are the interesting things. And that was exactly what interested me. You know, the ways that, Like, you know, just such things as these sanitation protocols became these venues for people to act out their anxieties. And, you know, it was psychodrama, you know, one psychodrama after another. And for some reason, uh, some perverse reason, those are the things that, that always interested me. So I started collecting these, you know, sort of horror stories and anecdotes about what was happening to people and including, you know, what was happening in my own domicile uh, during particularly the lockdown phase
0: yeah i mean this is a, it's a really wide ranging book i mean you go into you know topics ranging from bde uh big dick energy which is <laughs> you know that's that's a favorite topic of mine um, oh, or it was at the time although i my my thesis is that medium dick energy is actually the best on your team.
2: Um, oh, you're going to be funny. You're going to. We're going to be competing for funniness. No, but you win. You uh, during this. You, you've already won. Uh, thank
0: you. Well, I love this. I mean, I think your writing is is hilarious. So, all right. So, one of the things that you talk about in the book is codependency, and this word is is everywhere. And obviously, it was very easy to fall into codependency when you know you're just with the same human being all the time but what do you think is what do you think our kind of culture gets wrong in the sort of mainstream discussion about codependency or what's weird about it i guess if not fully wrong
2: well, one thing is just the way we're all such masters at deploying these diagnostic terms like codependency and narcissism. And, you know, nobody exactly knows what they mean. We have a sense, but they're so vague and all encompassing. They can mean anything. So one thing that happened was, well, of course, in the larger sense, a lot of people were, you know, experiencing substance, abuse issues either of their own or their mates which you know apparently really exploded during that time and you know another thing that happened to me and i think a lot of us was zoom you know we started having these conversations or like i did you know with people that you wouldn't necessarily be in contact with, there's such close contact so i had this long-running conversation with somebody i didn't really know that well a friend who had um, recently split up with his wife of like 20 years over her alcoholism. And so we started having these conversations about kind of, you know, the substance abuse, which was, as I kind of wrote about, a problem in my own relationship as as well. But, you know, his idea of codependency was that it has specifically to do with um, being in a couple with somebody with substance problems or alcohol. So one thing I've been thinking about was that really all relationships have their codependent sides. You know, one uh definition of it is that the non like uh substance abusing person sort of enables or sort of gets some pleasure or gratification out of the substance abusers' problems. And so they're they're locked in this dynamic together you know, and one person's covering up for the other person or, you know, feels like, and I think this could be said of me, you know, you feel like you're not the person with the problem. The other person is. so You get to sort of use their problems to exempt you from thinking about your own. Anyway, so just like these dynamics that people get into. And the friend that I was talking to, one of the things that he was very honest about was that he had realized that he had this sort of pattern of what he called emotional affairs that he kind of justified to himself because his wife was not there for him or she was, you know, in her own world with alcohol. And But when we were talking, what he kind of acknowledged was that, oh, actually that pattern of the emotional affairs had started even before his wife's drinking became a problem. So, you know, it was an interesting example of the way that you can use someone else's problem and in, in creative ways, you know, and, and, and he did.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to figure out like, cause there's this thing that you get at in your book that you'll uh, explain better than I am right now, but like in a lot of your work, one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, whenever uh, people kind of try to go into this kind of pure like victim, perpetrator, description of the situation. I'm not talking about crimes. I'm talking about like social interactions. You know, A relationship
2: crimes. Relationship
0: <laughs> crimes. Yeah. Um. You, you know, you you resist that um pretty frequently, which I think is right in most cases. Like, I definitely think that there is something good about the fact that you know people are becoming more aware of things like gaslighting and narcissistic abuse. I mean, there's a lot that's really good about that, but there is this way that like these terms are sort of, people are, are more comfortable, I think, than ever before, uh, removing sort of all personal accountability from a situation in a way that I think com- becomes unnerving. I, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, well, I wrote a whole chapter about, uh, this, I think it's called uh, Heterosexuality and its Discontents, and it's kind of about the mo- post-Me Too moment. And I had written a lot about, about Me Too, and, you know, in both a incredibly excited way at the beginning and then a more ambivalent way as I thought it became, um, I thought, you know, less and less honest actually, um, in the ways that, yeah, women mostly were exempting themselves, ourselves from, uh, responsibility for some of these, not responsibility, but, you know, for, for, for choices, let's say, in, in some of these situations and, you know, taking yourself, treating yourself as though you don't have agency and, you know, um, and that's been really difficult to talk about. And I think it's been, unpo- it's unpopular to, to, to bring up because we're supposed to say, yeah, the the men are the villains and the patriarchy is still, you know, as much of a, like, factor in all of our lives where, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's more complicated than, than that. And, you know, even in the Harvey Weinstein case, uh and he, you know, was, of course the, like, Patient zero of, of me too, you know, and then became somebody, one of the early people who got COVID after he was convicted and, and remanded to Rikers. But, you know, the, the women, there were women, and this came out of the trial that, you know, stayed in these relationships with him for years voluntarily, even after he had raped them or, um, you know, otherwise like coerced them into sex. So, so like, well, what is, how do we talk about agency and women's role in those kinds of situations? But, you know, also against the backdrop where there still are obviously incredible forms of gender inequality, power inequalities, particularly in like the entertainment industries, um, you know, all of that. But I just want kind of more honesty about. The calculations that a lot of people are are making and, you know, in the Hollywood context sort of trading on attractiveness to get advantages, you know, it's just very complicated.
0: And I, I think, OK, so I'm pretty familiar with a lot of your work and I, I think what you're I think part of what you're saying is. And where you're, you know, different from, like, very, very, very different from, like, the people who sort of talk about, like, responsibility that women have in a really right wing way is you're not saying, like, anybody is to blame for, like, you know, disgusting male behavior, but you're, you're talking about, like, it's not necessarily you know it's not necessarily like serving feminism for women to just com- kind of completely remove all discussion of our own agency to you know stay in situations to you know, I, I don't know <laughs> engage with people I, I, i'm i feel like i'm just completely flubbing it but i i think that like uh yeah the you're ne- i never find you to be sort of arguing that men do not have responsibility in these situations.
2: Right. I just think that to put all the responsibility on them is in a perverse way to kind of reinvest in these ideas about male power and, and patriarchy. You know, and in the same way, like in my last book, Unwanted Advances, which is about the campus sexual culture, you know, and I think putting all of the responsibility on the institutions to police, Sexual interactions, you know, particularly like say in context with undergrads where people have been drinking, um, you know, and then let the institutions, you know, kind of pronounce and adjudicate those situations is, yeah, to um, it's a kind of very paternal version of feminism, or, you know, a patriarchal version of feminism. Let's reinvest in the institutions and in um, those those structures. As, as opposed to figuring out ways to have agency. And again, you know, that's kind of an unpopular thing to say, but I am saying it as a feminist and a left-wing feminist, but who I've always thought that particularly in the American context, there's a way that American feminism has actually kind of perpetuated a lot of the more stereotypical and i think destructive versions of of femininity you know like passivity female passivity and um so anyway yeah so i'm kind of trying to to balance these things out and kind of try to be honest about where we we women uh, are maybe letting ourselves off the hook and i'll just say what kind of one more thing about that i mean if you know we're we're you know, talking a lot about, say, like toxic masculinity, and so what I guess you would mean by that is the way men are socialized to behave in certain ways. But I think there's so much less and like inadequate discussion about female socialization and you know the socialization to toward a kind of passivity, and I think that just does emerge uh, a lot in these discussions about uh, you know the Me Too the Me Too moment.
0: This is, I mean, this is a really nuanced point. So, uh, yeah, I just want to kind of look at this from a different angle because, you know, there's a lot of people. uh, There's like this sort of little subculture on the left that is very obsessed with uh, Camille Paglia. Paglia? I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I've only read it, actually. but, um, But, you know, just these kind of like this idea that I think she has that. Uh, oh, women! You know, like we, like if a if a woman is alone with a guy, you know, in and they're drunk, like uh, of course something is going to happen, or you know, I, and by something I mean sexual violence. Um, you know that like the the focus on like preventing sexual assault at on campuses should be exclusively kind of focused on women, and you know, just kind of I think in what way is like in what way do you feel like your view is is different than hers because I definitely think it is but I'm having a hard time like articulating
2: yeah I, I mean I haven't read her incredibly thoroughly but what I've read what I think the differences are is that I think she is and I don't want to mischaracterize her so you know with caveats um I mean I think she's got more investment in this idea of these kind of in in, inbred, I mean, that's the wrong word, um, you know, but, uh, essential differences between men and women where there's this kind of essential sort of masculine aggression and, you know, that these gen, gender roles, which I think a lot of us think are, you know, I think maybe more, uh, far more a product of socialization, I think she thinks are more essential and that, you know, that's never going to change. So that's my sense of where she is. And, um, yeah, I I, I mean, I do think think that becomes problematic if you are invested in some sort of, you know, social change. Um, I think I tend to think that culture is far more of the determinant and that these, you know, ideas we have about what's masculinity and what's femininity are are, uh, always in flux. So, you know,
0: one thing that I have thought about in the context of your work and also just, you know, in in my life is like, I feel, you know, I am like a, what you would say, like an elder millennial, you know? And um, I I have, I think, sort of seen in comedy, particularly, um, like, just because I guess that's, you know, that's my career, so that's why I thought there. But I've seen feminism really change and i think when you know when i started comedy for example like it, it was there was still it was there were starting to be more efforts to like you know be inclusive for women but ultimately like the mentality was still sort of like the way to you know succeed in comedy was very much to like fit into the boys club and like i feel like a lot of gen x women their feminism was Like a lot about just sort of being able to succeed in a world that was going to be, uh, you know, dominated by men for the foreseeable future. And then it's like you have these like Gen Z people that I'm going to be at risk of sounding like a boomer. But we were talking about like, um, you know, West Elm Caleb, uh, a a couple weeks ago where, you know, he was like, he ghosted and, um, you know, people were describing ghosting as emotional abuse and, you know, sort of like what he was doing or like sending these texts to women, um, flattering them like on his dating app as like love bombing. And, you know, like there seems to be like, I think what, you know, people like Tucker Carlson are always talking about like snowflakes and stuff and making like a huge deal, of basically people in their early 20s being you know very sensitive about things in a way that I think is like yeah, it gets a little bit ridiculous but I definitely do think that there is some <laughs> I don't know there there is some truth in a way to like this sort of like mentality of I don't know, but like maybe over fixating on on trauma in a way that is like probably a backlash to like not talking about trauma at all. In what way do you feel like you have seen like feminism change in the time
2: that you've been a feminist? That's a big uh-huh. question, I know. Oh, wow, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, you know, at the beginning when you were talking about comedy, I was thinking that I would love somebody to do, maybe I will someday do, or maybe somebody has done a really close study of Sarah Silverman's career. Because you know I first, when she started out was thought, "Wow, when she was making her you know rape jokes, the the famous joke about you know being raped by a jewish Jewish doctor, and you know very ambivalent experience, i you know obviously can't do the joke, and you know, you couldn't do that joke now, and I suppose she's probably renounced it um but yeah, the kinds of things you could make jokes about i I, I just think studying her career and you know the whole Louis C.K. episode that she became involved in would be fascinating in how she has had to adjust from being, you know, kind of edgy in the way that she was, and, you know, maybe you would say part of the boys' club, I don't know, um, to whatever role she has now. I'd love to know what you think about that. But, yeah, no, I mean, the conditions of comedy are... Uh, you know, maybe not, not so funny anymore, I suppose. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, you know, it's this like the cancel culture narrative. Like, and by that, I mean, like that, you know, you can't say anything anymore, cancel culture, like every, anyone can get canceled for anything, you know. I mean, this is like one of the biggest conversations in comedy. Sure. And for the most part, I find it to be like, I, I'm going to just say annoying because, I mean, y- you know, like there's these people who, you know, like, like Dave Chappelle, you know, his last special, y- y- there were some jokes that I definitely would describe as, as being kind of blatantly transphobic and, and you know, people were mad at him. And there was this whole conversation about like cancel culture, but like Dave Chappelle is not canceled. He's just absolutely not canceled. He's a really, 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 like, rich and successful comedian. He's still probably one of the top five most com- famous comedians in the world. His career is not going anywhere. And so you see all these conversations about, like, you know, people being canceled, but most of the people that are held up as examples are just absolutely not canceled. But at the same time, I do think that there is, like, a... There is some kind of truth to, like the uh the, the, there's some kind of truth to like the the impulse i think to go right to sort of publicly shaming and dragging people which in like the case of someone really really rich and famous is is super hard for me to to care about but you know when it happens to people who are like you know regular folks uh i i do think that we have kind of like gone a little bit to far into this like punitive impulse and it's hard to talk about because like especially you know if you are somebody that you know cares about uh people being you know marginalized groups being uh treated respectfully you know and people like you don't think the people should be saying like racist and sexist shit, not because you want them to be, like, thrown in jail for it, but just because it's mean and shitty. I, I don't know. Like, there's a... I, I just feel, like, with the kind of, like, cancel culture debate, like, it it's... The sides of it are, like, cancel culture is either the biggest problem or it doesn't exist at all. And th- those two things are both, like, sort of clearly not true. So I, I find the way that people talk about it annoying. And your perspective on it, I feel like I what I like about it is that you are grounded in like left and feminist values, but also uh, an advocate for free speech. And, uh, you know, I think that's hard to do because it's been so co-opted by the right wing.
2: Right. Well, you know, I would just comment that thing from a different angle. I mean, first of all, You know, I'm not looking to Dave Chappelle for moral edification, you know, so I think that is like miscasting him as a category error. But I am very interested in this whole idea of offense. And I had written early on in my career a long piece about Larry Flint and Hustler magazine. And what I was interested in about Hustler, which was, you know, very deliberately offensive and gross, and also used kind of grossness as this political weapon, um, was I'm interested in the way that it was almost a kind of map of the culture and the cultural sensitivities and kind of whatever was culturally sensitive, and whether it was at that time, say, interracial sex or it was trans um, bodies, or it was um, you know fem- feminism and the kind of like moral cudgel that feminism or some feminists were kind of wielding against um, sexual expression, which you know, I think, in Hustler's terms was very class based. you know, that feminists who were decrying pornography were these kind of, you know bourgeois kind of, Women, you know, in their fancy apartments. And the hustler reader, at least it's sort of imagined audience, was kind of a, a working class guy. And so I wrote about this a lot. And, you know, I think the same thing is true with somebody like Chappelle, which is that, you know, for better or worse, and certain people think for worse and certain people think for better, you know, he's finding where those cultural sensitivities are and kind of poking at them with his stick. And um, I think probably articulating things that a lot of people would like to articulate you know so on on the left or on the progressive side of things um you know we are for, and I am obviously for trans rights, and you know want um there to be you know trans people to be able to live in safe ways and you know um you know, for there not to be an onus on uh, people changing genders or experimenting with gender, you know, whatever. And I, I actually just wrote a piece about this that's coming out in a journal called Liberties, um, called, I think it's called Gender a Amele, and it's, a, you know, kind of an attack on people like Rowling, J.K. Rowling, and Kathleen Stock, who have, uh, you know, gone on and on about, Just women getting attacked in ladies rooms and that kind of stuff which I think is is bullshit and a kind of hysteria but I also am interested in the ways that probably vast sections of the country are uncomfortable with um, you know like say women natal women confronting people with penises in the locker room let's say and so to be able to not talk about that, I think, um, just adds to the kind of cultural divide and political divide in, in the country. So I am not, again, somebody like Dave Chappelle poking the uncomfortable subjects, um, because I think the reason that they're funny uh, to the people they're funny to is that those anxieties are on people's minds. And I think that is just the truth. So, you know, I think of somebody like Chappelle as a kind of truth teller, but of uncomfortable truths. And I'm not against that.
0: You know, it's like, I, on the one hand, fully think that art should not be moral instruction. Like the fact that people look to comedy f- for like how they should be morally, I, I think it's just actually ridiculous to me because I know a lot of comedians and, you know, just it, probably the most disaster group of individuals I've ever encountered, you know, like just a ton of people who uh, yeah, have a lot of problems. I mean, maybe everyone has a lot of problems, but just comedians in general, you know, it's a, very funny group of people, but that funniness, I think a lot of the time comes from, like, a deep dysfunction. Um, and this, mm-hmm. I- this idea that, like, comedians are the philosophers of our time or right. something, it's so stupid to me. But, you know, on the right. other hand, it's, like, people do <laughs> look to art as moral instruction and that I, there's nothing that I can say or do to change that. And, you know, I do think with someone like Chappelle, like, if somebody... You know, is transphobic. Uh, you know, or they maybe they don't really know what they fully think about. You know, they just haven't had have a lot. They don't know a lot of trans people. You know, or any. You know, I, I, I do wonder if like having you know sort of those like more bigoted opinions like validated in a way kind of gives people license to sort of dive more, uh, more into those depths than they would otherwise.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I think that, you know, even that uh, routine of his was more complicated than that, because, he, you know, as we know, talked about the trans- friend and uh, supporting her career and so you know to call him a bigot you know I think he was sort of trying to complicate that I mean you could also charge him with trying to use her uh his friendship with her and her death to his advantage to kind of let himself off the hook for saying stuff that you know some people thought were transphobic but it just you know was I think he it's I think the impulse on left Twitter, let's say, is to just denounce as opposed to try to get at the complexity of some of these things. And, you know, just the fact that, well, um, you know, it was, wasn't it like the most watched special on, you know, Netflix in, I don't know, whatever period of time if or perhaps ever. I mean, so you can say that that is... Uh, because it was transphobic, or you could say it was because people actually are honestly trying to grapple with these issues. And, you know. So I don't, I don't know. I'm not, yeah, you know, I, I just am less like eager to, to, to denounce somebody like, uh, Dave Chappelle.
0: I mean, I think the point that I definitely agree with you on is that. A, a lot of these discussions have much more complexity than, than they they seem like they have online, you know, and I, I do think that uh, social media has, you know, I mean, Twitter, especially because you got like two, 280 characters, but also all social media, like it's kind of, there is this tendency to be, I think, Super, super reductive, and remove all nuance from discussions. Um, I think about that. I think about that a lot with, like, you know, discussions about like sex, um, in particular. You know, which you talk about a lot in the book, uh, heterosexuality and its discontents, because it's like, on the one hand, I would describe myself as somebody who is, you know, on the whole sex positive. Um, I mean, I definitely think that sex work is work and that sex workers should have all the rights and be protected. And also, you know, I think like there is this way that I have seen men like heterosexual men kind of weaponize sex positivity in a way that like for me personally and for almost every woman I know, like has led to, you know, I think being sort of, like, pressured to, you know, do stuff that I wasn't quite comfortable with at that time, like in the book that you get, you give the example of like, choking, like, there's definitely been situations where I just straight up did not want to be choked. And, you know, my, (laughs) my agency is like, yeah, you know, like, what? Why? Why did I go along with it? I mean, that's like a complex and interesting question. And then there was growth available for me in that, you know in that question you know like what does it take for me to sort of feel comfortable setting my boundaries you know why what happened to disconnect me and from my own desire that it feels hard to identify even what I do want in a specific moment you know and i feel like with discussions like about sex in particular like it, it can kind of often fall, uh, sort of into this, these, you know, sort of two viewpoints <laughs> on the left, which is like you, all sex is good as long as it's consensual. And that's, you know, it, that's more complicated sometimes because it's like, what, I don't know, how do we, how do we decide what's consensual? You know what I mean? Like there are situations that it's like very, I, I mean, I think like erasing power dynamics from an analysis is i don't it's it's not a good thing, and I, I don't I don't know if like uh I mean, yeah i I think just a lot of these discussions kind of require a lot more nuance than than they're given,
2: I guess, yeah, oh, absolutely. and you know, the problem is with not having the really frank discussions is you know, particularly like, say, in the campus setting, the institutions are setting in are stepping in to do it for us. And I do think, I, I think this is, you know, particularly for young women, um, like a kind of horrible set of competing forces that you get caught in. And I, you know, realize this from talking to a lot of my students and hearing about their situations, which I honestly think it's worse than it was. When I was their age, because you know, on the one hand, you've got this kind of pressure to um you know be hot and like have sex like guys do in this kind of impersonal, drunken sort of way, and um you know which is I believe honestly is not particularly pleasurable kind of sex for women to have some you know, drunken guy inexperienced guy, sophomore on top of you who outweigh you know, can outweigh you by fifty pounds and, you know, it's physically not pleasant, it's emotionally not pleasant. And I think, you know, that pressure to kinda of be like engaged like that, competing with, you know, as you brought up before, all of these ideas about trauma and the way the trauma you know, and and um, emotional injury, you know, never go away, and that sex is considered to be far more harmful and potentially injurious than it than it used to be, partly because of um, the activism around like or ideas around rape culture, so that you know um, these experiences. Don't become, aren't just seen as a bad experience, they become a kind of identity. Like when I've spoken on campuses, um, you know, particularly in like those sort of smaller liberal arts kind of settings, the women are lining up at the microphone to call themselves survivors, you know, and to tell me that I'm wrong about what I'm saying because they're survivors. So it's not just like that they had a bad sexual experience or, you know, something like assault or some version of assault took place, which usually means drunken sex that they later regretted or didn't consent to. Um, but, you know, it's not just an experience now, it's an identity, you know, so it's part of, it's something that is never going to go away. So all of these, um, kind of competing impulses and pressures, I think, are, are just like a mess at this moment. But partly what's happening is because it gives the institution so much more power over people's lives that their, um you know, kind of role and rulemaking and bureaucracies just keep increasing in, in ways that I think is also pernicious and disciplinary and authoritarian. So, it's, it is kind of a mess, but I do think that, uh, somewhat more honest discussions Partly about the ways that women still are socialized, even in this kind of post-feminist era, socializing in ways that encourage um, or leave us more passive in sexual situations, you know, as you yourself are saying, than men are. You know, there just are these differences, I think, it's socialization, you know, as, as you mentioned to me, Camille Paglia would say that it's something more essential about male versus female sexuality, which is of course a very, you know, now we would say binary way of putting it. Uh, but, yeah, I do think there needs to be I think, you know, starting with more education for young women, and I think, and I said this in online in advance, I think self-defense training. You know, I think that uh, when I was younger, in my 20s, I took these two um uh, multi week self defense classes where you learn to like you know fight off an uh, an assaulter and kick through a a wooden board and stuff like that and you know the idea is that you can can defend yourself physically or attempt to if it comes to that, but also that it increases your own sense of self confidence and and students that I talked to who had uh physically tried to defend themselves when they were in situations where some guy was trying to overpower them or force himself on them. I mean, they had better, you know, they came out of those situations better.
0: I, am I, I mean, on the one hand, I very much agree with you. And I wish that, you know, when I was, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm in my thirties at this point and I feel really comfortable telling someone to fuck right off if I don't, want them to be doing what they're doing. But, you know, I do wish that, you know, self-defense aside, I wish that, you know, people had talked to me when I was younger just about, you know, boundary setting and how to feel comfortable expressing myself in a really clear way and, you know, what the obstacles might be to that. But, you know, I am sensitive to the fact that, like, some people are going to potentially hear this as, you know, victim blaming, which is, you know, obviously like has been the kind of predominant mode of dealing with sexual assault for almost all the time until right now. And even that's debatable,
2: you know? You know, I think it's just, I gotta say, I think it's dishonest. And it is why I think this situation is so stuck. Because if you talk about uh, this, and I think a kind of honest but sympathetic way, the these barriers get up and you get immediately accused of, you know, yeah, as you say, victim blaming and, you know, but it's, no, it's the men who have to change and why should we have to change? Why should we have to defend ourselves? That sort of thing. And again, I think it's this weird kind of um, passivity that says, we will just wait for men to change and for the culture to change. And in the meanwhile, you know, what happens, happens because no, it's, it's the, it's men who have to change in society that has to change. And, you know, I kind of think like, okay, but as a pragmatist, in the meantime, you know, let's have these conversations about how to defend yourself and also possibly, you know, um, and this was an incredibly unpopular thing to say. That getting Blatto drunk actually is a kind of weird way of um, replicating the female passive position. You know, like nobody's more passive than you know a woman who's passed out on the on the bathroom floor. And I understand the desire to you know I think drinking is great. You know, it it is this little. Access to freedom, you know, that we have and, and and want, but at the same time, okay, let's be honest. If you are passing out in a situation, yes, everybody should be able to pass out, you know, in a frat, at a frat party, and naked even, and you know, nothing terrible will happen to you. But yeah, and you know, you should be able to, um, you know, not have to worry or care about your physical safety anywhere if you're a woman. I mean, ideally, but it's just that's not the, the world that we live in. Unfortunately, someday I hope it it is that kind of world. But honestly, it's just not.
0: I wrote a comedy album kind of about that concept called Glass Gutter, which is like, uh, you know, I want to like – there's a lot of focus on women becoming CEOs, but like I want to live in a world where women can pass out places, you know, Mm -hmm. like making the world safe (laughs) for trash bag women. Um, (laughs) You know, that's how I want to express myself. All right. So I want to, before we uh, close out here, I want to ask you about a couple of passages in your book that I
2: found. Yeah. Back to the book. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is a very wide ranging discussion. Super interesting. So I think the sentence that I thought was probably the most hilarious in the whole book is the fact is that women finding men disgusting is a modern achievement. <laughs> okay, tell me about that. And
2: Yeah, well, I was, I mean, I think it is like a um, product of, of the increasing fe- amount of female e- uh, economic equality or, you know, the ways that women have become far more economically... Independent, Because, you know, if you go back and read like 19th century novels, you know, women were getting married to men that they probably would have found disgusting physically if they had that option. You know, but if the only option to like uh, live or, you know, get off the farm or... Uh, get away from your family because there were not access to professions and independent incomes at that point. you know the only option was marriage and to you had to suppress whatever feelings of revulsion or disgust you might experience you know like having sex with somebody you were uh you know in an arranged marriage so so all of these um kind of feelings and these this increase in sensitivity that we think is kind of natural, like, like if you read a social history book, um, you know, these are pretty recent feelings and experiences that our predecessors were, you know, not given opportunities to feel. So one of the great things about reading history is it does make you think or realize that your feelings and the things we think of are so essentially, you know, and deeply, a part of ourselves, um, are actually really socially produced and conditioned. Sorry, my other phone is ringing. Oh, no, ag- ignore it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't remember if you use this word, uh, specifically in the book or not, but, uh, like hetero, hetero pessimism of just kind of the, you know, this kind of like. I don't know. On the one hand, it's it, you know you see all these people like on the internet, you like dragging men that even that they're in a relationship with, like the 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 like men reading infinite jest, men not having bed frames. <laughs> these things are like memes, you know. Yeah. But like there is this sort of like a uh, idea that, <laughs> that like even like even and maybe especially if you are a heterosexual woman, men are are gross and you still want to sleep with them and there's something kind of ridiculous about that but it's there there is also like i think you know (laughs) as you mentioned it it is sort of like a sign of uh, liberation too
2: yeah i thought the line you were going to quote was where i say that in the post me to era um you know because i'm talking about contagions that that men started feeling like germs but germs you sometimes didn't mind getting horizontal with (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, so I think that is the conflict where, you know, you've got this political critique of men and male behavior, you know, rightly so, and at the same time, a kind of, you know, a heterosexual erotic desire, you know, that doesn't always, I mean, on the part of some women anyway, you know, that doesn't always comport with your, your politics. And, uh, you know, I think to some degree, like all the Twitter complaints about men are like the product of that conflict. you know, and and also that, I do think that it still is the case. and I, I quote that line of Henry Kissinger's about power being an aphrodisiac. I mean, I still think that even in these times, male power, for some women anyway, is still kind of a turn-on. And, you know, we you started with the idea of big dick energy, and I thought that that was, in some ways, also like a product of this conflicted moment, that you're, you know, on the one hand, trying to bring men down for their gross sexual behavior, while on the other hand, celebrating this emblem of, you know, masculine power, what has always been, you know, like, The phallus, you know.
0: (laughs) I really like this sentence. Um, Or was BDE a revanchist move? Was there still a residual fondness for big dicks or big phalluses or whatever amalgam was under discussion here? Still some life in the old paradigm yet.
2: Uh, yeah too much life. I mean, I think there's still plenty of life in the old paradigm, and that is the as I say, the conflict of this moment that you know women, heterosexual women often do still treat men like they have some kind of magical power over them, you know, and sometimes you know that like men are it's like they're a scarce commodity and their value increases because of their their scarcity. And, you know, I talk about this this episode that played out on Twitter where these bunch of different women, uh, you know, savvy, feminist-type women ended up being, you know, abused, kind of beaten up and strangled and worse by this same guy, a Brooklyn, hipster, writer-type of guy. And, you know, they kept going back into these situations, and it was like, well, what was this guy's magical power? You know, he didn't have any social power, you know, maybe he was cute, but what why sacrifice your autonomy to this abusive guy um uh, and it was a mystery to me and, and you know upsetting uh to 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 read about so
0: what did you end up concluding about that uh as someone who has been with some really shady Brooklyn hipster characters trying to figure out why did I do this? You know? yeah. well,
2: that's that is the question, and you know, I think there. I, I mean, I said they treated him like he was magical, and that was you know, like the being with him would confer some sort of benefit on them, even though the sex sounded horrible. Um, You know, he sounded like uh, somebody just you know prepared to take advantage, and and also was. Um, kind of emotionally sadistic, too, like, you know, j- jerk people around. Um, and so, yeah, well, what is, you know, people used to talk about there being some kind of uh, propensity for female masochism. You know, nobody talks about that now because it sounds Freudian and outdated. Um, but there's, you know, certainly something psychological going on. And I don't. Do you have an idea, since you are, you know, been in these situations? You, you're saying.
0: I mean, so yeah, I have a lot of ideas. I think that you know, on the one hand, I think sometimes it's really difficult to see things clearly when you're in the middle of a situation, you know. And I think, um, I mean, like oftentimes, you know, if you're in a situation, I mean, I, this this guy that you're describing way worse than, than anyone I've been with. But, you know, I, it, being in, in situations which, you know, I don't, I don't need to label it one way or the other, but we're harmful, right? Like, uh, I, I, I think I, sometimes it's really sort of hard to to see things clearly when you're in the middle of a situation where, you know, I mean, gaslighting is a real thing. I think sometimes, you know, people can be really good at sort of, like, putting the blame uh, for their actions, like, back on you, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's really, really sort of confusing. But, you know, I mean, like, for myself, yeah, I also think that, like, my piece of it is, like, you know, trauma or whatever. Like, why, you know, why did I sort of, grow up feeling like i couldn't expect more, you know? Yeah. And some of that is like family stuff. But yeah. some of it is also uh some of it is is also completely um related to the the sort of like societal ideas that of of women, you know? That like i mean like my own sense of like my worth, it it's not it's not extricable from, like, the messages that I've gotten about, you know, womanhood, my body, you know, my weight, my appearance. I mean, this is, like, I it's a complex mess. <laughs> and it yeah. doesn't make sense to talk about it in a reductive way, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I very much don't want to be... <laughs> like in the position of victim blaming or saying it's only the woman's responsibility, certainly not, but you know, that there are these kinds of complexity, you know, so I talked about um, (laughs) there's this horror movie, you know, there's a thing that happens in movies and you're yelling like, don't go in the house, don't go in the house. And it's, you know, as I say, it's from this movie from like, I can't remember. It was like the late seventies or eighties about a guy whose mother was abusive to him and burned him over a scalding tea kettle or something like that. And you know, so so he who grew up with this you know hatred of women, which obviously a lot of men have, partly because if you read certain psychologists like Dorothy Dinnerstein is really interesting. Um, you know. Mother-centered child-rearing, she thinks, is the, is responsible for a lot of the misogyny in the world. But, you know, so you have these men, I mean, the, who have their own histories and anger and, like, let's say, anger at their families or their mothers. And then you have these women who have grown up a little passive, and then they get together and, you know, do these kinds of, you know... Get into BDSM or whatever, which, so it's not only always this benign, you know, just like, let's role play kind of thing, like real stuff comes out in those, in those uh, situations. And, you know, women are unfortunately, oftentimes physically smaller, you know, more vulnerable physically than men are. And it's, you know, I think all this stuff just needs to be talked about more um you know in in ways that are honest and uh self-protective
0: um i think that feels like a good note to wrap it up on this has been such an interesting
2: conversation and i hope i I don't get canceled i hope i haven't said stuff you know we (laughs) haven't had this frank discussion oh my god i said dave chappelle don't you know so
0: yeah i I don't think you're gonna get canceled
2: this will be the end of me well haven't you you
0: kind of already got (laughs) i mean whatever the reply the the reply guys audience is, is certainly not uh i think in a position to to cancel um but we have a a, a, an amazing, uh, it, and you know, and growing, but ultimately, kind of c- c- small, committed group of le- leftist, feminist, uh, people who listen to this show, and they're
2: um, they're great. And I throw myself on their mercy. Um. So, where can people get your book? Um. Anywhere online. I, if you go to my webpage, lorihippness dot com, there's a. Or link it on the home page that links to all the different uh, and including non Amazon uh, online sellers. So, yeah, I would love it if you did that. Thank you for bringing that up.
0: This was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the
2: show. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If
1: you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash replyguys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett.